Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Recently, SFC Capital and Bohurst released a report on the seed investing market that showed some worrying trends. We get SFC's CEO, Stephen Page, on to discuss these. We talk about what's happening and why, and what could be done to fix it. Stephen refers to the recent EIS Association Awards, where this podcast was highly commended in a category two. Thanks to the judges. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harbourandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. On today's podcast, we are joined by Stephen Page, who is CEO at SFC Capital. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you, Brian. As usual, we'd like to get to know you a little bit better. So can you please tell us how you became involved in EIS fund management? Oh, and that's probably quite a long story, but uh, I'll go back and to give you a little brief, very, very brief summary of my, my life. I left school, became an accountant, went and worked for a couple of companies, found that I didn't like it didn't like working for someone else. So quite quickly in my life, about the age of 24, 25, I realized I wanted to get into something else and my, and be in charge of my own destiny. So I, I became an entrepreneur and uh, started a business in the software world uh, to do actually with accounting software, which didn't exist in those days. That was 1978, 1980. And over the course of the next few years, tried a few things, tried a few startups, um, as I say, accounting software, and then eventually found um, the right product, which was actually a third-party product called DataEase, which was a relational database system. And uh, it was an American product. We took it on as a startup in the UK, exclusive distribution, and um, I hired people, took a bit of angel investing in, which was very difficult to get in those days. And we launched it in 84, and it really took off. And I remember exactly the revenues, year one, 250, year two, 750, year three, 2 million, year four, 10 million. So it was fantastic, actually. And um, at the same time, I also set up another company called Sapphire, which went on actually to do very well in accounting software. So over the next 20 years, I was running those businesses. I went to live in America, ran the business from there, took in VC money. We nearly exited the database system, which had grown to somewhere in the region of 45 million revenue by 1992. So it was a pretty large company. We missed out on the exit uh, for timing reasons. And that's why I say today to people, be very careful when you turn down an exit because they may not come again. And because after we turned out, after we couldn't get the exit that had been offered to us from Lotus, the uh, one, two, three company, Microsoft came in and took over the market. So that was not a good feeling. And for the next 20 years, we ran that company down, actually. So it lasted 20 more years, which was a fantastic example of how our companies can have long tails. So at the same time, I had an offshore development company and I had other things. I actually sold a company that was involved in the 9-11 disaster, producing emergency management software, and sold that to an Indian company. And in 2009, 
And then 2011, yeah, about 10 years ago, I sort of was wondering what, what's the next thing? And constantly getting inundated by people wanting advice, funding, technical development, whatever it was, whatever it was. And that's how I got into angel investing. So then I set up the Startup Funding Club, which is the name that we used before SFC Capital, set that up in 2012. And really that was when the beginning of, of what is now SFC Capital. And then that would be the rest of the podcast, I would imagine. So, yes, well, we'll, 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 we'll quickly get an idea of what SFC is, because that will help frame some of the stuff later on. Yeah. Okay. So SFC as I started off as an angel network, as I said, just myself and a few friends that I knew. And the idea was to invest into some interesting startups. Mm -hmm. So the following year, 2013, we started to pitch actually some companies that came to us because we wanted to get some extra angels. And so we started to pitch at uh, Home House, the lovely club over at Portman Square. And in that first six months, we actually hit on a very successful company called Onfido and pitched them at uh, a Home House. And believe it or not, I don't know, some of your listeners will know of Onfido. It's an extremely successful startup, now valued at 500 million. And at the time, we were looking to raise funding at 600,000 valuation. So, you know, significantly early days for that company. They'd come into London, we put them in our office, we had this little office over King's Cross, and we had the, the three lads from Onfido came and sat in the office, which was basically their first London office. And I was a director, they appointed me as a director for the first couple of years. And I went out and tried to raise some money, but no one was interested, or they were interested, but they didn't do the deal. And it took six months to raise for them actually, which was very surprising considering the quality of the three lads, three young 24-year-olds, MBAs from Oxford, great idea, but very early days. So in the end, I put a little bit in and I managed to get another guy, but it took six months, as I say, and he came in and he put a lot of money in and he's now a very wealthy man as a result. So that was a great kickoff for the Angel Network. And that was just before... That pitching event was in 2012 when it was when SEIS came out. And that really changed everything. So we thought at the time, now in 2013, maybe we could try and put a fund together. So we found a, a fund manager who would partner us. Uh, in those days, not easy to find. So we actually came out with our first fund, SEIS fund, in the first quarter of 2014. And then um, after that, we've gone from strength to strength. We've been doing SEIS funds every year, two or three times a year since. And then we came out with an EIS fund in 2014 or 15, no, maybe 15. And then we became FCA regulated ourselves so we could take over all the fund management side. And we went on from strength, as I say, we became a partner with the London Co-Investment Fund Last year, we became a partner of the British Business Bank with their regional angel program. We've won a lot of awards. We won the um, SEIS uh, Fund Manager of the Year last week, the House of Lords, which was fantastic. 
So to date, we've made about 275 investment, SEIS investments, and about 100 EIS investments in that period. So we're very prolific and uh, volume-based, actually. Yeah, you must be one of the largest fund managers in the country by number of deals. I think by, but certainly by on the SEIS front, we're probably two to three times the next one. Because we, we've, for example, in the last year, we, we've done approximately 100 SEIS deals. Which is a, a remarkable number, really. It is remarkable, really. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, being such a large player, that gives you interesting insights into the sort of the seed market. And one of the reasons I wanted to get you on particularly was that you've just issued a report in conjunction with Bohurst called Seeding to Succeed. Now, we'll post a link to that in the show notes, but it shows some really interesting trends in the market. So I wanted to discuss those. Perhaps we should frame it. Lots of people know what seed investing is, but in case anyone doesn't, what is seed investing? Okay. It's used in different ways by different people. The best way of describing SEIS uh, as the round, if you like, is the first uh, institutional or main investment into a company. So that can be angels, it can be funds like ours. It's really just after the friends and family round, you know, which may or may not have taken place. But it's I call it pre-seed, really, what we do at the SEIS level and seed at the EIS level. So it's the first round is SEIS and then second rounds and onwards become EIS, which is more like seed until you get up to Series A, which then takes over from there. Mm-hmm. So Series A is where it scale up. and It and really scales up. You, you sort of below a million, I would say, is seed, you know, and below probably 200, 250 is pre-seed. Yeah. And these sort of companies, they're developing the product or they've got them an involved product they're trying to find product market fit. That's typically what they're doing, is it? Yeah. For me, what SEIS is all about is really getting the companies off the ground. And these companies that we invest in, more often than not, have very embryonic. They're very young. They're like little shoots that are coming out of the ground. Or to use the analogy, they're like little turtles that are trying to get to the water. You know, once they've been born, they're trying to get into the sea. So there's many of these. And we have to, you know, we're very careful on how we select which ones to invest in. But SEIS is all about giving them the chance to get to revenue, to get them to product market fit. They don't really have that at the pre-seed level. They more often than not don't have revenue, but some do. They more often than not have an MVP or a prototype. They have something like that. So it's um, they're not advanced at all. They're very young. They're normally six months old, sometimes three months, sometimes a year. And... Clearly, this is an important part of, of sort of the VC environment or, or even the, the economic environment. What does your report show about the trends? What it showed on the pre-seed trends very much was a little bit worrying, to be honest. It showed that back in um, before SEIS, the number of investments made at this level were very small. No, you were talking, let's say, 400 companies a year, something like that. And then when SEIS came out, you could see an escalation in the numbers of, of investments made. 
quite significantly up to in 2018, over 2,000 companies received SEIS investment. 2019, though, it started, it dropped a bit. And 2020, it continued to drop. And the question is why? No one has an exact answer to that, but we think it's, it's probably a number of reasons. And it's to do with probably how SEIS is structured and, how the, and the amount of money available in SEIS. It's still not well known either. Mm-hmm. Still not, you know, 600,000 companies a year are formed, but I bet you 99% of them probably don't know what SEIS is. So it's not a well-known thing, which is a shame. It should be. It should be more well-known. And also, the rules and the limits associated with SEIS have not been changed since it was launched in 2012. So, you know, I think as part of the recommendations of this report, it's really to bring those, bring SEIS up to date and make some changes. And uh, one or two tweaks to EIS, but EIS, generally speaking, is, you know, is, is very good. SEIS has not kept pace with nearly 10 years of changes in the market, you know, and inflation and all the rest of it. Yeah. But coming back to seed investing, I think, you know, I, as I read the report, I was struck by a couple of things because, as you mentioned, company formation has actually been trending upwards. So there's a greater supply of companies. If yeah. we look at the wider venture capital world, there has been much more capital going into venture capital and private equity and private markets in general. So at you know Series A, Series yeah. C or whatever, there yeah. is more money floating around. When I look at your charts, SEIS is part of what's going on, but it's you know in terms of funds raised, it's maybe a quarter of what's happening at the seed level. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. clearly a dynamic here that you know this this goes against the wider market as a whole. And it raises a deeper question about what's going on here. Hmm. I think the issue comes back to what I just said, which is the limit of SEIS investment is 150. It was 150 10 years ago. And it was limited because of the EU rules. And the problem with 150 10 years ago and eight years ago and six years ago, we used to do, we, when we would make an investment, into a company five years ago, six years ago, 150 was enough to get them through the first six to 12 months. Now it's not. So companies come to us not looking for 150. They're looking for minimum 250, but more likely when they come to us, they're saying 500. So our process then is to say to them, well, fine, but we've got to find the other amount, you know, because actually 150 will not be enough for you to survive what we have is a rule which is basically we want to see 12 months runway when they take the investment so that there has to be either a big grant from innovate uk which is fantastic or they have to have other equity investment as opposed to years ago so it's taking them longer and i think maybe what will happen we'll probably see those numbers could trend back up but Instead of it taking one to two to three months to, for them to raise the SEIS, it's now taking them three, four, five, six, eight, nine months because they have to raise a larger amount. 
So a lot of companies actually are falling by the wayside before they raise. Presumably, is that the two-year rule? Or is there other reason? Or just running out of money? They run out of money. They, they can't survive with no money. So, and they can't raise the three, four, five hundred, whatever it is they think they need, because that's not easy to raise. It's not easy to raise for companies at the SEIS level. There's not that many people like us. We, you know, there's probably eight or nine funds, I would say, if that. And so there's not a lot, you know, with the EIS, there are, I don't know, 50, let's say. So there's a lot more Almost EIS exactly funds. 50, actually. Right. So there's a lot more EIS funds than SEIS funds. And that means the choice of where they can go is us or angels or friends and family or whatever it might be. Friends and family, is, it's too big for. So they're looking for us or another fund or, you know, so it's taking them a lot longer to raise that money. And I think back to the point about VCs and, and PE, there's a stack of money there, but their problem is lack of deals. There's not enough deals going on that mm -hmm. have got to the stage that they can invest in. So VCs, and, and they're all fighting over the best companies. It, it's what I, could, what I think happen, is happening. You know, those companies have got to go through. Ideally, most companies have gone through SEIS and EIS before they get to the VC. So that is now taking longer because of, the, of what I said. To get them off the ground is taking longer. And I think that that's all, it's like a little bit of a whirlpool. You know, it's, it's not, and it's dragging the thing along and taking too long. And it will ultimately mean that the VCs are not seeing as many deals. They're not. You know, and our job, above all, is to get these companies started, reinvest, our EIS fund only invests in our SEIS companies deliberately. We don't go outside of those because we've got plenty of them. And then take them through, take them through, help them get the funds to get up to when they talk to VCs, you know, which we've got a, quite a large number that have done that. But, you know, it's gonna, it's, it is a numbers game at the end of the day. So, you know, it, it's going to be 10 to 20% of our companies will get through to Series A. One thing that intrigued me reading the report was if you look at the first time number of deals, that kind of corresponds with SEIS funding. But yeah. knowing that there's all this money for later stage sort of VCs, why aren't more of these guys trying to deploy money at an early stage, whether it's by finding specialists or doing it themselves? Yeah, I agree. I think they should. Why aren't they? I don't know. If I was them, I'd look at someone like us and say, whatever the type of speciality they have, they could say, all the AI companies or all the med tech companies you invest in will come in alongside you. They then get a portfolio. What VCs need is to get this deal flow. Why don't they come down? I think it's, they haven't quite worked out that that's the best way to do it, to build their, build their deal flow. It's, it's high risk, of course. It's much higher risk. But still, VC levels risk is risky. But if I was a VC, I would, and you know, we will, we plan to have our own VC at some stage because it's the logical next stage for us, you know. And um, after SEIS, EIS, have a VC. If I was them, I'd be looking to do something, use someone like us or some of the other good funds to to provide that. Yeah, it would seem to me that if you think about the amount of money involved, because a lot of these 
large VCs, they, they've got funds in the order of tens or hundreds of millions. Yeah. So deploying, I don't know, five million, say, at seed stage would A, not really adjust their risk return profile a huge amount or not take a huge amount more risk in the context of portfolio hall, but actually would give them exposure to a lot more deals and, and, and create things in their pipeline. I agree. I think they, I think one or two of them have tried it. Well, in fact, I know one or two have. And one of them, we had an example of a company where they, one, a, a well-known VC invested, they put, I think, 250 into 10 companies and then selected one of them only to take to the next stage, which was a bit of a death, death knell for the other nine because people coming into the other nine and saying, why is that VC uh-huh. not reinvesting? It's not a good sign. So there are pluses and minuses to that sort of thing, you know, but I still think that model of some sort, maybe with a bit of change to that particular fact, but it, it could, um, could work for them. I, I would if I was them. I, you know, that's why I think our logical thing is next to have our own VC on because we've got this massive deal flow. Presumably that's also a risk for you yourself. I mean, I mean we've seen the rise of multi-stage managers in the US and while we haven't quite got in the UK, maybe at some point we'll catch up as we usually do. But there, there's got to be a risk where if you're saying, right, I funded, I don't know, pick, pick whatever number of you know seed companies and I've got funding for one third of them. And if you happen to be in that, the 35th percentile or whatever, you don't get funded. So you've got a black mark against you because you're yeah. not being funded. Does that create a risk in terms of that company will then find it hard to get funding elsewhere? Oh, yeah. I think it's always, you know, they have to be so careful, these companies. There's no follow on from an existing fund. There has to be really good reason. And, um, Otherwise, it is a big black mark. Because we know the companies from day one, we follow them, we attend all the board meetings, we do what we can to help where, we, where we're asked and where, where we can add anything. So we know the people and they report to us every three months. We know how good they are from a corporate governance and discipline viewpoint. And so we're following that. And so the good companies, we will always now take up, for example, our preemption rights. Because otherwise, it's going to be a not a good message, not a good message to uh, any, any other investors coming in. In fact, it's about, it's, we're the same as, you know, when we do EIS investments, we are saying, and they've, they've had maybe a previous round, why are they not coming in, you know? And immediately you get concerned. Well, it's a big issue. That's why you have to, that's why I think from our viewpoint, we always, the good companies, they have to show they know what they're doing and that they're on the right track. And we will always take our preemption rights. And they probably have to pick their funders carefully accordingly as well. They have to, you know, they have to have a proper investment strategy themselves and, and a plan and not just suddenly do it every six months to a year when they realise they need some money. So coming back to seed markets as a whole, you know, we, we spoke about the lack of SEIS funds and we know that's challenging because the economics make that, 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 that difficult. But there's two of the big players in the market, which is angels and crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering how you see those, because my impression as an outsider in the angel market is that it's doing pretty well. It's pretty healthy. So are they not capable of picking up some of this slack? I think... Um 
it's, it's very interesting to see how it's developed because, again, SEIS and EIS are really the drivers. Mm-hmm. The, um, ten years ago, when, uh, when we started this thing, there were very few players. And um, I remember Beer and Partners, who, uh, who are not, not around now, but Angel Investment Network, Angel's Den, there was a few players, but not many. And angel investment was not for those that uh, were, were risk-averse in any way, you know. But when SEIS came out, it brought a whole new range of people into the world. And that's when we started our, you know, pitching events and things like that, because it brought these new people in, which basically were well-paid, young, not young, but any age, but well-paid people who wanted to offset some tax so it was a really good incentive there. We all know that you don't lose a lot through it. You know, you can 25% or whatever it might be is your maximum risk. So we brought a whole new swathe of people in. They came in and they started to invest either directly into funds like ours or, or alongside. And they then got the taste. And so that sort of has snowballed a bit. So there's definitely a lot more angels around now than there were. Last year, though, I think they did take a little bit of a step back because of COVID, from what I can tell. Uh, we certainly found that in terms of direct investing, not in our funds, actually. Our funds were fantastic last year. So uh, there was no effect there. And angels really are on, on both. Those that put into the funds are still angels. Those are well-paid people interested in investing into startups. And then you've got those that pick off themselves, pick off the individual investments themselves so i think it's quite healthy we've got great uh, governing body like ukbaa and so there's a lot of work going into really developing the angel network and so yes it's healthy but they are there's still not that many and there's certainly not enough women we need to see more women female mm-hmm. angels you know everyone we have had to... a female angel on the podcast so i'm pleased fantastic. to say fantastic but it needs to be more you know, and um, so, yeah, now we work very close to, closely with the angels. And this, the British Business Bank initiative called the Regional Angels Programme, which we became a partner of last year, is all about that. It's about developing angels in the regions because we could then match any, if we got investment alongside our fund from an angel in Birmingham, as an example, we could then draw down on this, extra money from the British Business Bank. And is that dependent on where the angel's funding or is that dependent on where the company's based as well? well? Where the company is based. Right. Where the company is based, yeah. But it did draw out, it has drawn out some, you know, regional companies and some regional angels. And again, the UKBA are doing a lot to try and develop regions from an angel's viewpoint. Yeah, yeah, because that reflects the the pattern in the whole the rest of sort of the funding and the in sort of venture capital where there's a London southeast bias to yeah, everything. There is. And it's still there. And you know, we're trying very much to to actually invest more in regions than in London. The reality is though that more than half the companies that come to us are from London. You know, it's remarkable really. I mean and like we are with um, you know, we have an initiative to invest in female led companies and diversity and so we're really trying to do all, all that stuff. You know, if, if they don't come to you, if you don't, if it's not out there, you can't do much about it. I think these things can take a while to gather steam. 
I mean, London's interesting because you have that critical mass. You've got, you know, there's already established infrastructure, established encouragement. Yes. Um, you know, the areas around Old Street or wh- whichever area you, you want to pick. Whereas perhaps those models are only just becoming more prevalent or more available you know, around the rest of the world. I mean, I'm in Edinburgh and, you know, we've had examples recently of Skyscanner. And yeah. maybe up until Skyscanner, I wasn't probably aware of a really, really successful startup in Edinburgh along those lines. But now we're getting those, you know, in other places as well. So hopefully with that sort of role model, you'll see more of these mm. coming through. But yeah. then there's also that awareness aspect you spoke about. And do you think awareness of things like SEIS or EIS is better in London than the regions as well? I think because of the ecosystem and the fact that networking, certainly, you know, if you take out the COVID period when no one was really networking much, and hopefully we're getting back to where networking and, and so on, everyone talks about it. So startups are much more aware of these things they're in London because of all the activities that go on. If you go up to, you know, to a region, they don't have these activities. So why would they be aware? I mean, the more savvy will be looking, check, researching. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are not aware. I, I've been surprised when I've met a startup and they don't even know what it is. And certainly angels, a lot of, a lot of investors don't. A lot of investors don't. Well, that's surprising me because most investors who have money have some sort of a tax advisor, accountant who is who should be aware of these things and should really saying, well, if you're investing some money, you know, and you can get money back, why don't you? Because they're a bit nervous. These advisors are a bit nervous about promoting high risk tax schemes. You know, because they are high risk. You know, but you can make a lot of money if you get it right. If you, particularly if you do a portfolio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've been doing some work on that, and I think you'll be seeing some work from ourselves coming out soon along these lines about um, you know trying to get asset allocations sorted out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. One thing that I wondered how it affects all this stuff about the seed market is valuations, because obviously with all this capital at a later stage, that's affected valuations, chatting to other fund managers – I know that there's some concern about some unrealistic expectations, even among seed stage, about valuations. And to some extent, that makes availability and deploying capital effectively harder. What what, what effect do you think valuation has had on on what you're seeing in the report? Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, there's no question that valuations haven't gone up. They have. They've gone up. I would say they're pretty much again for pre-seed first funding pre-revenue companies sometimes without a product they come along and they expect a valuation of let's say on average two million pounds go back three four five years that was one million so i would say the valuation has pretty much doubled in the period of the last three four five years now that's not good for many reasons. First of all, it does. that's another reason why it takes longer to invest because it's unrealistic to expect that sort of valuation. They, the reality is they come along with three, four, five million valuations and it's absurd. And then that takes a long time. They go away. They say, no, we, we make an offer, let's say one or one and a half million or 1.7. They go away and they, they then realize it takes them six months before they come back 
and say, actually, okay, we'll be interested to talk again, a much more realistic valuation. Because because of these uh, unicorns, because of the fact that VCs and co have got a lot of money at the moment, and because of the news that comes around, companies like Hopin, which was spectacular success, because of all those factors, these very early stage startups think that they are going to be the next unicorn, the next Hopin, so they should value their company accordingly today, despite the fact they have nothing. You know, for me, these companies, almost without exception, every company we invest in, the valuation is zero. That's the reality. <laughs> the valuation is zero. It's a question of what equity do people like us get for the investment? And when they come along and say, you know, you can have 2%, 3% for 100,000 or something, it's absolutely ridiculous. The risk is very high on these, at this stage. Having said all that, we still, have to, we still have to make our investments. So we, you know, we do make our, our average investment valuation is now higher. Mm-hmm. Yes, in- inevitably. And do you think this is because there are, presumably somebody out there is raising money at a 5 million valuation instead of the two, you know, yeah. n- not very many, but it's enough for someone to say, well, I heard such and such got this, therefore I'm as good as such and such. It does happen, Absolutely. And um, I'll be honest, occasionally we have done valuations outside of what we would normally do. It tends to be where there is something exceptional. It tends, I think we did a COVID-related company at a valuation higher than we would even envisage. And we did another one likewise, but because it had exceptional something or other. So normally it's exceptional people. So if the people who are, if the founders are exited entrepreneurs or have some exceptional factors about them, then the valuation is, can be a lot higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But on the other hand, as, as somebody said to me recently, it's like, you know, most people think there's Mark Zuckerberg, but your default should be you're not Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, there's not very many of them around. Yeah, no, no, no. But we did, I mean, I've, I, you know, there's an example of an exited uh, entrepreneur where we did do basically outrageous, really. But because it was that person, it made sense, you know, and chances are that it won't succeed on the second time, probably, because it's very difficult to do that. But... You know, there is a premium associated with, with that type of thing. And normally, in our case, we, 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 we've either known them for a while because it's all about getting to know the people, you know, and, and seeing whether they've got it or not. And you mentioned something about COVID there. Have you seen any change in the sorts of companies you're seeing over the last sort of two or three years? Does that feed into this trend in any way or is that just, you know, sort of progressing as usual? We, we saw a lot um, during COVID. When I say during, it's still not over, but generally speaking, let's say from March last year to March this year, we saw lots of companies that were specifically something to do with COVID in some way. So it might be, and we invested in a, in a couple of them actually, because they had wider, wider application. So one company called Codicoat, which had a, has a film that, you, that goes on the surface and kills all viruses on that surface. And it's a very thin veneer that can go on the surface. And they've got a pilot at the Royal Opera House 
So, you know, that, that very much has applications just not for COVID because it's any virus and so on. So if it was specifically, we did see specific ones for COVID and we didn't do any of those because, you know, we're all hoping that COVID is not going to do what it did last year. So, but otherwise, we saw a lot and have invested in quite a lot of, uh, let's call it med tech, biotech, health tech, whatever you want to call it, but where there's a lot of remote remote activity, where, um, you know, you've seen a lot of these. They're very topical where you have tests at home and send off the results. We did a few of those, two or three of those, doing well, actually, you know, and again, it's wider than COVID, but COVID sort of brought it to the surface as being something that is going to happen anyway, you know, and um, so, yeah, you know, not not specifically. We, we stayed away specific on COVID, but we saw, you know, Hopin is a classic again, you know, I keep mentioning it, but we didn't invest in it actually, but those types of companies that were applicable, having said that, we've seen one or two disappoint since, you know, so having something that was suitable during COVID for, you know, delivery services of some sort, food delivery, whatever it might be, doesn't follow that they're going to be successful post-COVID. And already one or two that we've seen are starting to, to come down the other side of it. Yeah, I've seen some data on some home food meal pack sort of things, yeah. which did tremendously last year and have, have faded away a little bit. But yeah, yeah I, I, I think some of them will be better placed than they were before the pandemic because they've, yeah. they've built that infrastructure. And yeah. some of them will probably just fade away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that what, what, I, what the pandemic has done well is, in a way, it's, it's really sorted out the, 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 the survival of the fittest, really. Although not many have gone down because of the furlough scheme, but they will go down now as a result of it finishing. But generally speaking, those companies that survived, that we'd invested in previous to prior to March last year, none of them have gone out of business, actually. And they've all hunkered down and they've re, you know, pivoted some of them, and particularly those in the travel industry, and come out the other side very strong. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's, that's good to yeah. hear because you, you worry about sectors. About, yeah. That effectively, what I think of as doing as a Wiley Coyote, where they're, they're out over that cliff in that fresh air and there's nothing below them. And yeah. whether they'll reach the other side is under doubt before they plummet down. Yeah. yeah. But they, the good on. At the end of the day, you know, good entrepreneurs will pivot, change, adapt pretty much to anything and take the opportunity that's presented to them. And, you know, COVID was an opportunity as much as a negative in many ways, you know, for them to pivot and change and improve and become stronger. And, and it's, a lot of ours have come out the other side or emerging from the other side stronger, which is fantastic. And those are the companies we want. And those are the ones that we will continue to back. So on that, what I'd like to do is move on to our standard questions. Mm-hmm. So I think you've already hinted at solutions to one or two of these, but we'll, we'll ask you anyway. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment you made and why do you make it? Well, we, because, we're volume, because we do a lot, we, we, we have quite a few. So um... <laughs> Pick one or two. <laughs> I wrote a few down, actually. I was thinking a good Novi, N-O-V-A-I. It's a glaucoma diagnostics um, 
tool. Glaucoma is a very serious ailment, and they also have a similar solution for, I think, for dry eye macular degeneration, and um, they're going from strength to strength. And we invested in them last year and again, I think, three times since. So we're really excited about that company, Novi. Then there's a company called Meiku, M-A-Y-K-U, who are built, have, again, we've done a similar, we did their SEIS and we've invested three times since EIS. They have a product, which is a kit, a model making kit for home use. And again, for COVID, when everyone was working from home and hobbyists, um, you know, people were being more hobbies, you know, hobbies were, were much more in vogue. They, their, their kit, their machine was very successful and very popular. And they've now turned it, used that success to turn it into an almost industrial level. And uh, for companies and for larger in institutions. So really excited about that company. Algebra is a, a Islam, Islam Sharia compliant bank. We announced that that was on, that was in the press last month, because Philip Hammond, Lord Hammond, is one of the investors there. So um, you name it, we've done. We've got companies in that sector. Okay, so there's the famous VAC triumvirate of market product and management. So we all know that they're very each. They're all very important. But which one do you think is the most important for you? There's no question. You know. And increasingly, to be honest, <laughs> you know, I, I've been personally in, 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 as I said, in business now for oh, forever, 40 years, actually. And this has always been the case. It's all about people. And um, so particularly the early stage where we come in, you, you can have a great idea. You can even have sales coming in. But if you don't have the right team and the right founders the right management, and that they have put in place the right structure behind them, then it won't work. So it's all about the founder, the leader, the CEO. We, when we mark a company, we, give a, we have a matrix upon which we score. And out of 50 points, 20 of them, and I'm thinking of it, that we should even increase it, actually, 20 of them are about people. Um, and it's 10 for the CEO stroke found leader. So CEO leader, we give 10 marks. Is that person a driving, you know, resilient? All the things we know that's needed in someone who's going to face up to all sorts of problems and issues. Are they, have they got the strength? Can they look at pivoting? Do they get worried about, about uh, the finances? Are they savvy with finances? You know, are they determined? Is there a reason why they're doing it? Is there a real reason why they're bothering with this? And then the team around them, that's equally important. You know, and has that CEO put in the right, they might be co-founders or they may be people brought in. In either case, or in both cases, they have to be motivated. You know, they have to have the right share options or shareholding and, you know, really be, why is it they're bothering? You know, because these days people can go and get a good job in a corporate and become a lazy so-and-so and not do a lot in corporates as they tend to do, or they can work absolutely like, you know, 90 hours a week or something and, and eventually might even fail, but they're so determined they're gonna make it work. 
Presumably part of that, you mentioned about having the right infrastructure behind them. I mean, if you're investing right at the, you know, if you're the first money coming in, presumably a lot of time you're looking at the potential or the willingness to put that structure in, not the structure being there. Absolutely. And we we help with it, to be honest. We're we're always talking to them. When we have our um, reviews of the company and and particularly the, 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 the investment committee, we're looking at the team. And then we're seeing what's the balance of the shareholding. And we go back to the founder and say, look, actually, we don't think it's right at the moment. You've got 95%. And your two, your two people you brought in on day two, not day 20 or 50, you've very kindly given options of 2% each to. <laughs> so now, is that fair? You know, these people are going to make, it, make this company successful with you. You know, we think that you need to do something with that. And we always insist on a large option pool. So when we invest, they have to put in quite often 20% of the company is put to one side as an option pool to be used for people coming in or existing people. So, yeah, that's, that's the, the main area that we, the two main areas we will focus on, people and then what's the financial position of the company. And most importantly of all, what's the next 12 months cash flow? You know, that, that's the most important thing, yeah. When we invest, we want to see 12 months runway we want to see that the company will be here in 12 months so it's got a a chance of succeeding so we see how they they react on that are they savvy on numbers or not so those are the key drivers for us actually the market is very important of course you know we want a scalable market where they can grow to but having said that sometimes a nice niche market can yield a good return for investors if you get in at the right valuation and then you sell the company for ten million, you know, you can make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If you can, if you can dominate a niche that's yes. underserved, that can often be uh, as good or, or make it more likely to succeed because there's yes. more of your space. Tell us about the time you failed and what you learned from it. Well, in my life, I've failed many times. The thing you you have to learn from failure is that everybody fails many times probably every day in something you know so don't get upset about failing you know learn by it why did what what happened what what went wrong but the reality is no one knows what's going to happen as we all have learned through covid so you cannot predict the future so you have to be very cautious about how you are thinking about the future you have your optimistic face you have your realistic but don't believe a single business plan. So I think one of the things, I would have probably believed some of these business plans 10, 10 years ago. I don't believe one of them now. I've never seen a business plan achieved in my life, I don't think, including my own. <laughs> so you, know, you just use the business plan and a forecast as a guide. And you try and, you know, certainly on the cost side, you need to try and stick to it. But you certainly don't believe the top line because it will very rarely happen. Uh, you know, I've failed personally, you know, we've made investments that have failed and I've been surprised. You know, really sometimes a good team comes along and they fail. But the, why do they fail? And it's back to people. It's quite often, I would look back and say the main reason companies fail is because the founder gives up, the team breaks up. You know, So if you get two founders or three founders and they break up, it can be... A, a disaster for the company 
So again, we've backed companies occasionally that have then... So the failure is maybe to recognise that there's going to be problems with that team. You know, it's, it's, it's teams. I can talk for hours about my own personal failures, but I won't, except to learn. You have to learn from them and not get too stressed. And don't put everything on the line. Put something to one side. So if things don't go well, you know, you can survive that. You, you, you don't want to go down with your ship totally. But don't worry too much. The best we like, actually, when people come to us, when founders come to us and they failed, I love it because they've learned from that failure. You know, if they come alive, particularly if it's the same team. So we've got a very nice food company. They came to us and they said, our first startup failed and we were the two founders. Fantastic. Why did it fail? They told us the reasons. So they're not going to make those mistakes again. You know, so failure is good for that reason. It may not feel like it at the time. but <laughs> No, it's very painful, but it's a good thing. So you outlined earlier some of the ideas you have for sort of making making the EIS and VC industry better, particularly SEIS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you want to add to it, that or um, anything else you'd like to say about how you think we should be improving the industry? Well, I think as far as SEIS and EIS is concerned, they have become a bit too complicated. They need to be simplified. You know, with SEIS, it needs to be increased at least to 250, I would say. And maybe, maybe more people will then come in and more funds will be there to... We don't want to monopolise the SEIS industry. We want lots more people in there because it then means that a lot more is going on and more companies are coming through to be invested in. So, you know, the two-year rule, as, as you mentioned earlier, sometimes when we invest, when the investigation takes place, two years and three days ago, they raised a consulting invoice for something completely different, but that knocks out SEIS. De minimis aid, which is state aid, which is not nothing to do with SEIS, but it's, it's offset against the allowances. So somebody might have had a 50K state aid grant of some sort, and that reduces down SEIS. And so on and so on. There's lots of problems. It's 10 years old, SEIS. It needs to be updated. EIS in general, I think, is pretty good. There are some tweaks needed there, probably. But it's a very good, it's a fantastic scheme. We are the envy of the world with these schemes. Mm. Yeah, you know, I'm not we surprised. really are. And you talk to anyone overseas and they, you say, SEIS 50%, EIS, you get 30%, no capital gains tax. They can't believe it. They, and and it, it is so important for this country. That we, that we keep these schemes in place and improve them. And then VCs, I, I don't know enough about the VC, well, I'm not a VC, but, you know, I think, as we said earlier, maybe they should start investing a bit earlier, start to get know, to know their companies, partner with people like us, partner with other funds, you know, and, and that's how they're going to get the deal flow they need. And they'll get these companies known from the beginning. They come in now and they haven't been with these companies. We've been with them from day one. We can say what's happened to these companies and whether they're, you know, and move them through. So I think that would, VCs should be looking at people like us and EIS funds, and we should get the whole schemes, you know, improved. And it doesn't need much. It doesn't need much, actually. No, it's not major can, surgery you're talking about here. Not major surgery. You know, the 150, 
Moving the 150 to 250 will cost the government almost nothing because it's a 20% it's a difference. Not going to make a massive difference to the government. For what it's worth, I think that has probably been the most asked for change on this podcast. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that's interesting. Because it's, and that, that says something, doesn't it? It means, because 150 is not what it used to be. <laughs> it really isn't. I know inflation it's, in theory has been very low in the last 10 years. But you, you ask any founder, will 150 pay for your, well, that's two programmers for a year. Or it's, you know, it just doesn't do it anymore. No, it's, it, it won't. One fifty thousand won't get you very far, as you say. It won't. It won't. No. So I am a fantastic reader, and I'm getting through about four or five books a month at the moment. Wow. Um, so, is there anything you like and would recommend? I tell you the book. It's not. It's not per se. I was thinking because you put it in your uh, questions. I, I was just thinking, what book do I think is good? Yeah, that's it. And. It's so true. This, now, we've invested in a few companies that are looking at bias, so in recruitment in particular. And um, there's a great company we invested in called MeVite, which does software for recruitment, looking at the bias to do with various things on, on a bias front. But noise is not bias. But noise is how you, as a decision maker, behave based upon what's happened to you, you know, in the last, sometimes maybe in the last 24 hours, you know, and it's a fascinating read. It's about how judges give down, for example, a judge would give a different sentence based upon their own personal circumstances over the last month or so. And it's proven to be as important almost as bias is how we react and behave based upon the latest things that have happened to us. The noise around us, social media, whatever it is, it affects every all our decisions. And that book I like very much. I love it. Really good. Well worth a read. Good. I, have, I haven't read that one yet, so I shall add it to my list. Perfect. What do you wish you knew when you started venture capital investing that you know now? It's a tricky one, that. Uh, the answer is everything, because I know that in the early days, our... The companies we invested in in 2014, 13, 14, generally speaking, nowhere near as good as the ones we're doing now. And um, now I don't think it's necessarily because the industry's changed or the, I think it's because we, me and the team, have just got better at understanding and feeling, you know, and getting a feeling for the companies we're looking at. In a way, it's intangible, but definitely over the last, eight to ten years i've certainly improved at seeing when i look at a company you get that instinct now whereas maybe 10 years ago although i thought i knew but because i'd been an entrepreneur myself but i don't think i did i think i was guessing now it's based upon that sort of you just learn all the time you're learning and it's back to the people it's back to getting a feel for the people and you know and probably in those early days you know, a thing I, that we try and do now, we only like to invest in people we like. I know that sounds a bit cliched and all the rest of it, but it's true. If you don't like someone and they're not responding to you, you know, we probably would have invested in that five, seven years ago. But we shouldn't do. We shouldn't do that. We should only invest in the people who you respond to and, and the team, my team, like and think is, has got the ingredients, you know. So... 
it's a funny question because it's everything. In, in this industry, it's like any industry, I always tell my wife this, it takes years to become good at anything. Mm -hmm. It takes years. It's that famous, another book that you'd have read, Gladwell, wasn't it? It's, um, is it Gladwell or about it takes seven years or 7,000 hours or... Oh, it's a 10,000 hours, which 10, is, hours. isn't quite right. I, I, I prefer the Anders Ericsson version because he's got this thing about peak performance and he's studied it properly. So he's a scientist, right. Right. but I recommend right. the Anders Ericsson version of that because he really does talk about how you learn. And I've forgotten the phrase, which is kind of this, you know, this focused learning, structured learning right. rather right. than just sort of randomly pottering around. Yeah. And, and yeah. So I think the, that's the big thing. It's basically people think they know, but they don't. It takes years. It takes years to become good at anything. And, you know, and I think I probably thought I was good at it. You know, you said what you know, and that's why I say it's everything, really, because I've, I've got better and the team have got, they've all got better, you know, because they've picked up this experience. So experience is what it's about in, in whatever you do. Yeah, no, I, I can second that. I mean, I've been involved in venture capital about that, you know, probably about 2014, 2015, when I got invo first got involved. And I'd been a fund manager for a decade. And of course, I know about fund management, uh, but of course, it's different. It's not the same. So, it is different, yeah, yeah, it is. I'm now aware of my ignorance. Yeah, <laughs> we all are. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone wanted to find out more about what you're doing at SFC Capital, where should they go? Well, obviously the website, sfccapital.com. If anyone wants to email me directly, I'm very happy. Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at sfccapital.com. Or generally info at as well. So we're open. We're very friendly people. So, you know, we like to communicate and uh, we're always interested in great startups. Great startups. Okay, so we'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on today, Stephen, and giving us a great insight to what's going on in seed investing. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Brian. Nice to talk to you. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.